0: Well, glad to see you all here tonight um, we of course have been going through this series on church practices and uh, as I was preparing this week uh, to talk about communion uh, I realized I really should have finished the entire series with this talk uh, in a very real way communion is how we finish our time together uh, it will be how we finish our time together tonight it would have made sense um, to do that pre-covid communion was something we uh, did each week and we will get there again um, when we can you know do the bread and all that kind of stuff. Hopefully that won't be too long. Uh, I don't think we can't afford to do the little cups that we have right now every week, because those things are expensive. Uh, as it turns out, uh, when you you know privately seal Jesus' body, it gets uh, gets pricey. So, uh, But we, we will get there again. But uh, communion is really, a, it's a very central part of what we do. Ever since we began 14 years ago, it's been a regular part of what we did. Um, and We consider it to be the goal of each time we get together. It's where we're headed each time. Uh, No matter how close to on time we start or don't start, no matter whether the technology works or doesn't work, the songs are perfect or the sermon is even tolerable, we end at the table. And that is what it's all about. Right? It all leads to that place to remember that act and to remind us of who God is in that way. So it would only make sense for us to end this entire series with communion. But I didn't do that because I didn't plan this uh, well enough. Uh, And the truth is, we could spend an entire series talking about communion. And that's the other problem. As I I began to work on this week, um, you know, we try to get about a 20-minute to 25-minute talking because that's, that's the most attention span you possibly have. And that's probably being generous for most of us. And we could spend weeks on this idea of communion. It is such a central part to the faith tradition to to the church, early church, and everything uh, that it did uh, we could spend weeks on it and I, I can promise you tonight and this is bad salesmanship on the front end of a talk I can promise I am going to do a grave injustice to the topic. I mean we are barely going to scratch the surface at a ten thousand foot view uh, of this whole idea so uh, but let's go ahead let's get the injustice underway and just uh, you know just know ahead of time that it's coming so uh, we're going to start in Matthew uh, verses, uh, t- uh, chapter 26, verses 20 through 28, which you already heard uh, Jake read once tonight, but I'm going to read it again, and then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the directions that communion takes us. It says this, uh, this is just Matthew's account of, of the Lord's Supper, there's, there's of course other accounts that look a little bit different in the other Gospels. It says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after another, "'Surely you don't mean me, Lord.' Jesus replied, "'The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. "'The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. "'But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. "'It would have been better for him had he not been born.' "'Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, "'Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi.' "'Jesus answered, "'You have said so.' "'While they were eating, Jesus took the bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus gathers with the disciples for the final time, uh, including those he knows, or the one he knows will betray him, and the others that he knows, we find out soon, that are going to deny him this ragtag group of people. He gathers with them. He does what is a very common thing, breaks bread, shares wine, but he makes it a moment that is consecrated. And he talks about breaking his body and shedding his blood for them to eat his body and drink his blood. What a strange little practice this is. Now, I know that we have done communion for a long time. The church has done it since the beginning um but communion always has been weird we've just gotten used to it right jesus uh, followers jesus uh, loses follow other places in the gospels where he begins to talk about eat my flesh and drink my blood and people go okay yeah i'm out weirdo and they leave right early christians had had a weird people didn't know what to do with early christians they gathered together, they gathered places that you shouldn't gather. There's even parts in Christian history where they gathered in tombs because they could do what they're supposed to do uh, you know, there and not get in trouble for it. And they would bring all kinds of people in. There would be Jews and Gentiles. There would be slaves and their masters. There would be rich and poor, all gathered around the same table. And the table meant something back then. Who you sat at the table with was who you considered your equal. And they all gathered around the same table together. And they talked about eating Jesus' body and drinking Jesus' blood. And they called each other brother and sister. And so they were thought to have been incestuous. They were thought to have been maybe cannibals, right? They had all kinds of weird things thought about it. It is a weird custom. It's always been strange. If you, don't know, if you don't know to not feel weird about it, you're going to feel weird about it. In fact, she's probably not going to like me telling the story on her, but many years ago uh, in the church when we were doing communion one of the weeks, uh, the Sparkmans walked forward, and at the time, little Aubrey Sparkman came forward, and whoever was serving the elements uh, we, we've learned to maybe change the wording for little kids sometimes, and I will just say, this, is, this means God's lo- God loves you, but I said, that person said, there's the body of Christ broken for you, and she took the bread, and they said, Christ's blood shed for you, and Aubrey went, "You know." <laughs> she was not a very spiritual child, obviously. We're still working on that with her. But I mean, but on the surface, of course, ew, no. <laughs> right? What a weird thing to say, what a weird thing to do. Yet it, is, yet it is very central to the Christian practice. It is this very odd, very strange thing to say and to believe. There are tons of implications. And when trying to tackle uh, an idea this large in 20-ish minutes, I was just struggling to find a good blueprint. Like, how, how do, what do we talk about? There's, there's so many ways to go with it. And I couldn't figure out the, kind of the right framework. And luckily, I stumbled upon someone else's. And why create something when you can steal it? There's a theologian named Eugene Boring, and go ahead and make whatever joke you want. I'm sure he's heard it. And he talks, he frames communion up in the, as the idea of being directional, the different directions communion points us. It draws our attention different ways at the same time, and this fr- framing rang true to me. So I just want to spend a few minutes thinking about the different directions communion takes us, knowing, again, we're going to do it in justice, but maybe, maybe it'll help shed a little bit of light on it for us. And first, when we talk about communion pointing us one direction, we realize that communion first challenges us to look backwards, to look backwards. And I know we are people that says, oh, just keep looking forward, don't look back. But Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember, look backwards. Remember who Christ is. Remember what Christ did. Remember how Christ loved. Right? Take this most mundane and common of things, hopefully, eating, drinking, and make it a sacrament. Take this mundane thing and use it to, as a reminder about what is most essential and true about God and about us. Remember Jesus. And you might be tempted to say, why do we need another remembrance, right? Now, there may have been times and places, there may still be times and places in our world uh, where Christians uh, really need to remember Christ and talk about Christ and bring up Jesus. Maybe they can't do it in public. Maybe there's persecution. Uh, Maybe Jesus is not well known. But we are in America. People can't seem to shut up about Jesus in America, right? He gets mentioned in every political speech. He gets mentioned in virtually every football celebration. And that covers a lot of territory between those two things. If anything, you could probably argue that we might be taking Jesus' name in vain a little bit too much in this country, right? It gets thrown around very flippantly at a lot of different times, probably in ways that Jesus never intended. Do we really need to remember? But but I want to draw a distinction there. I think Jesus' name is brought up a lot in our culture. I think we are reminded of Jesus a lot. But we are not talking about being reminded that Jesus existed. We are talking about remembering who Jesus was. And I would argue we're extremely bad at that. We're reminded of Jesus a lot. We don't remember Jesus very well. While his name is invoked often, I'm not sure we truly remember Jesus I was in North Carolina this week to, to be with Dad as he had a surgery which which went well by the way I forgot to mention that earlier although he's got a long recovery in front of him now with with a new knee and I tried to get out a couple mornings to kind of walk jog uh, which I'm still I'm still recovering from my own surgery so I can't really get out there and run yet uh, before I was an amazing runner uh, but now because of the surgery yeah I'm, I'm limited I'm not quite the gazelle I used to be but. Uh, and there, there's this great path, kind of a rails to trails thing like we have here going all throughout by my parents' house. And so I, I was going down on that, and it, it kind of leads up to people's backyards. And people will put little things on their fences and little signs out there that they want to kind of signal things out to everyone else. Maybe it's their favorite team or whatever. And there was this big kind of, kind of like the size of like a p- political sign uh, that stuck in the ground on someone's backyard. And it was a picture of Jesus uh, from the waist up. And uh, what they had basically done, whoever created this beautiful artwork, uh, was basically take the, like the body of an MMA fighter at weigh-in, right? So shirtless Jesus and Jesus, Jesus had, had cut out all carbs and sugar. Uh, I mean, Jesus, it, Jesus was ripped. And Jesus was flexing, right? So he was like just flexing all his muscle. And then it had a very traditional like, face of Jesus that you would you know, walk into any church maybe and see. And, and then it also had uh, the icon, the sacred heart icon from Catholic iconography, uh, and Jesus kind of, you know, flexing. And I can't remember, I want to say there was even a tattoo on Jesus' arm, but I can't remember. But uh, Jesus was ready to throw down. Whatever was going on in that picture, Jesus was ready to throw down. And I just remember, I kind of ran by it, I remember thinking, what What are we trying to say here? (laughs) I'm not really sure. Like someone like saw that in a storm. You know what? I got to put this on the path for everyone to know what I what I need to communicate to them. And I don't know what was being communicated there. Jesus gets brought up a lot, but I'm not sure we really remember who Jesus was, right? I mean, Jesus' name gets gets used for everything. Again, scoring touchdowns, right? From scoring touchdowns to starting a war. From conspiracy theories to power grabs to cover-ups, Jesus' name gets invoked in a lot of things. He always has been and probably always will be used for kind of whatever we want to justify. Recalled in all kinds of ways that he probably shouldn't be. And at least, I think in part, that is why we look backwards. That is why we try to actually remember who Jesus was and not who we've created Jesus to be. We remember God's body broken for us. I'm not sure how the God of, of the communion that we celebrate and the MMA Jesus fit. I don't think they probably do. We remember God's blood shed for us. Remember a God who took all the world's hatred, all the world's sin, all the world's anger that was unjustly poured out on him and forgave those who nailed him to the cross. We remember a God who died for the love of those who killed him. That is the God we remember in communion. Not MMA Jesus, God on the cross. And there was, a, there was a pastor not long ago who, who got famous, uh, and things didn't go too well for that pastor, by the way, but uh, who got famous for saying, uh, I'm tired, basically, of the church preaching this weak God who just took it and died on the cross. I could never worship a God that I could beat up, which is a really clever saying, except it's exactly the God we worship. We remember, we look back at the God on the cross. We remember the God who clearly demonstrated the nature of love, which is breaking and pouring oneself out for someone else. We remember the God who chose to be broken for our benefit. We look backwards so we remember who Jesus really was. But we don't just look backwards. When we celebrate communion, when we come to the table, we are also looking forward, and I mean all the way forward, right? The communion table is not just about what happened a couple thousand years ago. It is about what is still to come. It is about how all this story ends up. If you want to impress your friends, the theological term for this is eschatology, what happens in the end, right? And I know what that conjures up for you if you grew up in church like me, especially in the 80s. That conjures up all kinds of sci-fi, fantastic stuff, right? It conjures up seven-headed beasts and apocalyptic wars. And uh, to be perfectly honest, the way we've taken books like Revelation and translated them and used them in Christian culture, particularly the last few decades, uh, is, is kind of a blight on our theological tradition. It's not a great part uh, of, our, uh, of our tradition. And when we think about eschatology now, a lot of us have been kind of sullied by that and we think about this weird, fantastic, sci-fi, violent weirdness that happens at the end of the time like, like a movie you wouldn't let your kids go and see. And it's usually used to manipulate people or it's just based in really honestly just bad theology. And Someday when I'm brave enough and have enough time, we'll just maybe look at the book of Revelation and talk about why that is. But even though that is true, and we want to be careful of that, and even though we are a reality-based faith, right, real world, real flesh, real blood, incarnation, accepting the world on the world's terms and dealing with it as it is, what's happening here now, those are all true of our faith. But we are also, in a very real sense, end times people. We are a future-oriented faith. We live here, but we look forward to something else, something better. And I'm not talking about leave this world behind, give me a ticket to heaven and let this thing burn behind me, an escape plan kind of theology that ignores this world. I'm talking about the idea that this whole story is headed someplace. There is a destination. It leads to something. And that something, according to Scripture, is when God draws all things, all people, all of creation back into God's self. That one day we are all at the same table, every nation, every color, every kind of person imaginable, sharing the same table, the same bread and the same wine. Slave and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, all sharing the same communion table. Each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we welcome all to the table. And we do that because we are acting out where we are going. We are doing eschatology we take reality on reality's terms, but we don't forget that this is not the destination. This is not we are, where we are heading. We are called to be the first fruits, the first sign of what is to come. We are taking steps in a direction right now. We have our feet firmly planted on the ground where we are, but we are oriented towards the time when all this will resolve and be redeemed. We look backwards and we look forwards. Communion doesn't just cause us to look backwards and forward. Communion also calls us to look inside. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's a long passage there that would warrant its own several uh, sermons uh, that is kind of, can be a little tough to read. Uh, Paul, Paul's saying some rough things to the Corinthians about how seriously they take communion and, and what they are doing and shouldn't be doing surrounding communion. But it serves as a warning, and at the very least, it serves as a warning to not treat the table flippantly, right? A warning that the communion table is a place to look at our own hearts, to examine our own motives, to ask ourselves who we are and where we are in regards to each other, in regards to the love that God has demonstrated towards us. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, it says, Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. In other words, when we come to the table, we look inside. We examine our own hearts in light of who Christ is, what Christ did, and where we are going. We examine our own hearts. We ask ourselves the hard questions. We take a truthful look at our own tendency to avoid the very sacrificial love that God gave us. We take a hard and honest look at the way we don't celebrate that love in this world. We haven't allowed it to invade us the way it should. And as we take the elements into our own bodies, God's blood and God's body into our own mouths and stomachs, we look to embody that same sacrificial love. And that doesn't come easy. That doesn't come easy for us. In fact, for me personally, and this may not be true of you, I hope it isn't true of you, most church experience that I had uh, growing up, did not do much in the way of inviting me uh, to have any kind of ongoing introspection or to ask the hard questions of myself. In fact, I would say you should be aware of any church that uses communion or any of its other church practices to help empower you to judge others and uplift yourself instead of examine your own heart and humbly acknowledge your own uh, shortfallings. Our practices as a church, and particularly communion, should always involve sobering trips inwards, not confident judgments outwards. Which is not to say that the communion table is just about me. We don't just look backwards, we don't just look forward, we don't just look inwards, it's not just about me. We do also look outside of ourselves. Not in judgment, but in welcome. The communion table is... Is not only the place where we consider ourselves and our own standing before God, it is where we consider the body, the community, and where our hearts stand in relation to that community. It is a reminder that each of us in this room is equally invited and equally deserving of the body and blood of Christ. We are all invited to the same table. And let's be honest, most of us don't really believe that on a day to day basis. You've got your people just like I do. You've got your people that deep down can't really be invited to the same table as you. And at the communion table, we look outward and we acknowledge God's love for all of us. This is one of the things that was most disturbing about the early Christian community. They upset all the social orders that they were in. They wouldn't fight the same fights as everyone else. They welcomed everyone in that they weren't supposed to welcome in. All the stratas that had been created, all the ways the society was supposed to work, got thrown under because of the way they loved each other. It is a reminder that we are called to share what we have and to draw closer to one another. In communion, we remember that we are called to community, to a shared life and a shared table. Again, in 1 Corinthians 11, but verse 26, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim it. Communion is a proclamation, an act intended to announce this peculiar and beautiful kingdom of God open to everyone. It's one of the things we do that should make us so weird in this world. It calls us out into the world to reenact God's table through our own. Communion calls us to look backwards. Communion calls us to look forwards. Communion calls us to look inward. And communion calls us to get outside of ourselves and look at each other and see each other as God's children. Now we're like 20 minutes in. And we're almost done. And I don't believe I've even scratched the surface of what communion really means. I promised you I would do injustice, and I'm a man of my word. There is so much more to this seemingly simple practice we do each week. Communion is not something that we do lightly or without intent. Communion matters. We gather at the table, we share the bread and wine because it reminds us all of the real reason we do church at all. Our faith and our communion is intended to infiltrate every direction in our lives. We meet each other at the table because God has called us to meet at his table. Again, our faith in our communion is intended to infiltrate every direction of our lives. The table calls us backwards to remember who Christ really was and not who we have tried to form him into being for our own purposes. The table calls us forward to remember all that God's history is moving towards, and it's moving towards a kingdom without end, a kingdom that welcomes all, loves all, feeds all. The table calls us inward to be honest and humble as we look at our own hearts and our own lives and still, in all of its shortcomings, find only God's love without condition and God's grace that renews every morning. And the table calls us outward to really see each other for the beloved children of God that we are. To remember that we are here for community, that we are not here just for ourselves and we have this very particular call to build this very peculiar community of love in a world that needs it so much. Communion is an act of God's beloved remembering who God is, what God has done, who we are, where we are going, and what we are called to reenact in this world. Communion isn't just one of the points in time when we gather. It is the point of gathering. And so tonight we want to invite you to the table. We want to remember who Christ is. We want to look forward to what Christ is going to do. We want to look in at ourselves, be honest in our own personal assessments, knowing that God's love and God's grace is here for us. We want to open our eyes and see each other for who we really are. If you'll, if you'll grab uh, your cups... we remember as Christ gathered his disciples for the final time. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. And then he shared with them the cup. said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for this weird little church practice that you have given us. This thing we do that on one level makes no sense and on the other level, on a deeper level, makes sense of everything. Lord, we know it doesn't fit in this world. But if we allow it to, it can order the world that we are creating. So God, we are grateful. We are grateful that you are a God who has broken your body and shed your blood for us. You are a God who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made yourself nothing, dwelt among us, and gave your lives for us. God, may we follow communion in all the directions it sends us. And when all is said and done, may we be a people made peculiar by your love. God, we do love you, and we do this because we love you, and we ask all things in your name. Amen.